Welcome to the New Life Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. For more info on service times and locations, you can find us at newlifefoursquare.org. In this episode, Pastor Thel continues our new series, Extravagant, with a dynamic message on the imperative act of forgiveness. This morning we'll continue with the second in a series of messages on extravagant. Last week uh, it was extravagant grace by Pastor Mike. And today we won't simply be talking about forgiveness. We'll be talking about extravagant forgiveness. All right? Meaning um, exceeding what's appropriate and reasonable, absurd, excessive, exorbitant, extreme forgiveness. Now, for example, it is one thing to forgive someone when they forget to show up in an important meeting. Or your husbands forget your wife's birthday or an important anniversary, right? Or they open their car door and it dings your car. Well, you forgive them. And it is another thing to forgive someone for serious offense, someone who besmirched and maligned you, or to forgive someone who hurt you repeatedly and deliberately. Pastor Fred Winters, for example, was shot and killed during a Sunday service on March 8, 2009 by a troubled young man. A week after this very tragic event, his wife Cindy said this about the alleged killer, and I quote, he said, I don't have any hatred or even hard feelings toward him. We have been praying for him. And one of the first things that my daughter said to me after this happened, he said, you know, I hope that he does learn to love Jesus through all of this. We are not angry at all, and we really firmly believe that he can find hope and forgiveness and peace through this by coming to know Jesus. And we hope that that happens to him. Now, you hear stories like this and wonder how in the world is forgiveness even possible? A gunman opens fire in an Amish school and and, and kills five girls. And afterwards, one of the members of the Amish community says, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive. And not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. Early this year, Brian Redden, he is an Uber driver in Nashville, Tennessee. He stopped at a convenience store to fill gas, to uh, his car with gas, and another car pulled beside him. A teenager got out of the passenger car, pulled a gun, pointed at him, and says, give me your keys, your money, your wallet. I'm taking your car. Well, Mr. Redden did not quite move fast enough, so the teenager shot him. And so... A few days after that, he was captured, and now he faces uh, a long prison term. Mr. Redden spent some time in a critical care, but he came through, and he is expected to fully recover. His reaction to the ordeal surprised many. He forgave his attacker, and he said, I have no anger for what happened. I pray he finds his way. So every now and then, you, you, you will hear stories of such extravagant forgiveness, 
someone who has endured tremendous hurt at the hand of another and is willing to move past that offense and extend mercy to the offender. Another example is Robbie Parker, whose daughter was killed at the Sandy Hook massacre or killing and shootings. He stood in front of the cameras and publicly forgave the killer, the gunman. Or Renee Napier, whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver in 2002. She reached out to the driver while he was in prison. She not only helped him come to terms with what he had done, you know, she forgave him and even, even lobbied for his early release in prison. Now, what about the story of missionaries that were lined up and killed, and before they die, they get on their knees and pray for the salvation of the killers, many of whom later came to know Christ. That's what you call extravagant forgiveness. Now, you hear the stories of extreme and extravagant forgiveness and wonder, would I be able to do the same? Uh, there are many who have already decided even before the question is asked that they cannot, they will not, they won't forgive such an offender. Now, I can understand that kind of thinking. Frankly, it is sometimes hard for me to imagine being able to forgive to such an extent. It is something that we can do only by the grace and the power of God. The fact is, however, that the need for such an extreme examples of forgiveness are rare. They happen to be sure, and no doubt we all have experienced at one time or another situations that challenge us to forgive others in a big way. So how is this kind of extravagant forgiveness even possible? Now that's the question we have before us in our text today, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Let me give you a little background of what was taking place here. Jesus was talking about guidelines for dealing with those who sin against us. He was talking about conflict resolution in the context of the church. How to reconcile those who disagree so that we all can live in unity and harmony. It was in this context the Apostle Peter asks a legitimate question. Verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked... Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? And then Pete suggests a number up to seven times. Now you can see why Peter would ask this question. Because centuries ago, someone said, for, one, for the one who deceives me once, God forgive him. He deceives me twice, God forgive him. He deceives me thrice, God forgive him, but I won't. Now, you have to admit, that sounds a little reasonable. There comes a time when you want to say, enough is enough. I've had it with this guy. I've had it with you. No more. That's it. There are limits to how much most of us are willing to forgive. Now, the thing with Peter is that he's being extraordinarily generous and gracious here because there is a rabbinic Tradition that says if a man commits transgression the first, second, and third time, he is forgiven. The fourth time, he is not forgiven. So Peter more than doubled this quota of forgiveness based on this rabbinic tradition. 
He has clearly learned something from Jesus because he now understands that retaliation is not the right path to follow. You remember what he did to one of the men who came on the night that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? So now he understands that, type of, that, that, that forgiveness is to be pursued. You can understand the type of patience that is needed to forgive someone seven times of the same offense. But then notice how Jesus answered in verse 22. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, I can just picture somebody writing an iPhone app that would help to track the number of times you've forgiven someone. But that is not what Jesus meant here, man. He was not saying we should keep track at all or keep a record of the wrong that people have done to us. What he's saying is stop counting. For believers, forgiveness is to be unlimited. It is a way of life. Forgiveness is to be freely offered to all who sin against us. Now, this means, then, that if you are keeping track of how many times you've forgiven someone, you need to stop. And here's the point that Jesus is making, that we need to forgive an unlimited number of times. Now, you can see that this is a radical kind of forgiveness that goes far beyond what you'd expect. So the question is, where am I going to get that kind of ability to extravagantly forgive? Where am I going to get the resources to forgive someone to that level of extravagance? And Jesus answers this question, and the answer comes in the form of a story, a parable. A parable, as you probably not know, is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. And so he tells the story of the unforgiving and unmerciful servant. Chapter 18 of Matthew, verses 23 to 35. The story is a simple one. There are three characters in this story. And the first character is the king or the master. Now, a king in that day would have had many officials who handled money on his behalf regarding the affairs of his kingdom. Now, you need to know that the use of the word servants here could refer to individuals who held official positions under the king. And as such, they are servants. They are workers of the king. They serve the king. They work for the king. The servants could rank as highly as provincial governors. So they're not servants like some domestic helper or a hired help or a slave. And so you can picture what happened here, right? It is odd at time. And one of the king's servants working at the treasury department points out that there is some, there are some irregularities here. There's a discrepancy. The, money, the more they look, the worse, the worse it gets. And something is not adding up, right? The books are not balancing. Something is wrong. Something, somebody's 
getting some money here, dipping in to our resource, to our treasury, kind of a thing. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And this leads us to the second character. He is the official, one of the king's servants, and possibly another servant working with the treasury department. It was discovered that he owes the first character, in this case the king, a vast amount of money. And I mean big time. The amount of money is so vast that we have a hard time even understanding how much it is. It was an unpayable amount of money. Uh, let me give you an idea of how incredibly huge this debt to the king was. The combined annual tribute or taxes that Samaria, Judea, Edomia, these three cities paid to Rome, the annual taxes and tribute they paid to Rome is 600 talents. Okay? This man owes the king 10,000 talents. A talent represented about 20 years worth of work for the average worker. Now, those of you that are mathematicians here in this room, 20 times 10,000 is how much? 200,000 200, years, according to Wikipedia. He owes the king 10,000 talents. But look what happens, 24, 27. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, his wife, his children, and all his possessions be sold to repay the debt. Now, <laughs> at this, the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me. I, he begged, he pleaded, and I will pay back everything. Now, let's stop there. Think for a moment with me, will you? Do you honestly think the king believed that he had the ability to t pay him back? Huh? that he was going to be able to pay him everything he owed. The king knew that he did not have the resources to pay what he owed, not in a million years. But here, look at his folks. Yet despite that, listen to what the king's response was. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled his debt and let him go. Verse 27. The master forgave him, released him, let him go debt free. Now imagine how this man must have felt after his debt was canceled. Something that he was not expecting to happen. This was an unimaginable act of mercy on behalf of the king. Guess who he calls first? with his iPhone 11. 
Honey, are you sitting down or standing? I've got something to tell you. You are not going to believe what happened just now. You remember the debt we owed the master? I got called in a day for accounting and debt settlement because we don't have the resources to pay the debt we owe. The master ordered that our family, our kids, everything we own were to be sold to repay the debt we owe him. But I pleaded for mercy. I, I begged him to be patient with us. And an unbelievable thing happened. He took pity on us and he canceled the debt right there and there and let me go. Now we're debt free. You know what this means? This calls for a celebration, right? I'm on my way home right now. Now get the kids together. We'll go out and celebrate at In N Out Burger, my treat. <laughs> but what is really so staggering and shocking is what happens next. Here's a guy who had just been forgiven billions of dollars. Understandably, he is happy as a lark, right? A tremendous amount of load on his shoulder was lifted. He is on his way home, looking forward to celebrate with his family. And on his way home, he comes across Someone who owed him a hundred days worth of wages. His colleague, a fellow servant, a co-worker, maybe a friend, and the mood changes. Remember now, he's been forgiven billions, and now he goes after someone who owes him, say, a little more than just $10,000. Now watch now, it is a big deal when someone owes you $10,000. Unless you have just been forgiven billions of dollars. I would like to think that if that were you and I, of course, we are going to cancel or forgive someone who owed us with that much with that small amount of money, right? After all, we've just been forgiven billions. And not so fast. Look what happens next. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. This is the third character in our story. This third character owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. I mean, he physically attacked him. He was living. I mean, he said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him. He said, be patient with me, he says. I will pay you back. But he refused. And instead, he went off and had this man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, do you know what I have noticed among believers as well as in my own life? Are you still with me? That when it comes to forgiveness, the greatest challenge to forgiveness is not limited to the big offenses that we experience. The greatest challenge to forgiveness many times is being able to forgive the so-called little things that others do to us. 
instead of letting go, we hang on to them, we ruminate, we nurture, and we remember as we replay these memories again and again and again. And with each repeated viewing of the offense, they become greater and larger and bigger and more difficult to forgive. The end result is that our refusal to forgive the so-called little offenses is just as damaging and emotionally draining as one's inability to forgive the big offenses. And here's this man whose debt were in the billions and has been canceled by the king and he refuses to forgive the man who owed him peanuts compared to his own. And the man begs him and pleads with him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. Ironically, that was the very same plea that he used when the king threatened to sell his family and all his possessions. And yet he refused. Now, news travels fast. Some of the king's servants, officials, heard about it. And they were outraged. And so what? They related to the master the information. And he cannot believe his ears. I mean, he's got to be kidding me. Are you sure he's the same man who, whose debt I just canceled? And he did this to the man in prison who owed him a small amount of, compared to the one that he owed me. And that I understand that he, this man begged and pleaded for mercy like he did to me. And he refused Verse 32 to 34, then the master called a servant. Watch this, folks. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger... His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. The problem was not that this man did not understand how extravagantly, rather was that this man did not understand how extravagantly he had been forgiven. And as a result, he was not able to forgive others. And, that, and then Jesus concludes with these haunting words, people. Words that are difficult to ignore or forget verse 35 this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart Jesus is saying that if we withhold forgiveness from others for what they have done to us, then God will withhold forgiveness from us. This is staggering. Jesus is essentially saying that every time we refuse to forgive someone to what they had done to us, we are like the man whose debt of billions was forgiven 
and refuses to forgive a few thousand dollars owed him. In Matthew 6, 14, 15, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Before he spoke these words, people, he taught his disciples what he called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer contains the phrase, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's very interesting that Jesus considered this phrase the only phrase in the Lord's Prayer that he needed to explain further. Forgive us our trespasses. In other words, he's saying, let me clarify so that you understand what this is all about. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If we are honest, we sometimes act as if forgiveness is available to us in unlimited supply, but it is okay to dole out or extend out forgiveness to others little by little as we see it. But Jesus makes it plain as he could, and he says, if you want to walk in the fullness of God's forgiveness for you, then you must be willing to forgive others who sinned against you. Are you there? This is heavy stuff, huh? We choose to forgive because we have been forgiven. There's a paradox at work here that challenges us to stretch our theological thinking. Jesus said, if you forgive others, God will forgive you. And then in the book of Ephesians 4.32, the apostle Paul said, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Well, now which comes first? And here's the paradox, both. To an extent, we forgive because we have been forgiven. We walk in the fullness of his forgiveness as we forgive others. Forgiveness for Jesus is not a quantifiable event or an accessible event or a calculable event. It is a quality, a way of being, a way of living, a way of loving, a way of relating, a way of thinking and seeing. It, it, it is nothing less than the way of Christ. And if we are to follow Christ, then it becomes our way as well. Not seven times, but I tell you, 77 Times. Does this mean the drunk driver? Yes. Does this mean the cheating spouse? Yes. The racist? Yes. The bully? Yes. The abusive parent? Yes. The greedy corporation? Yes, 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 yes. Look at the history of the world with me. The Holocaust, the killing fields of Cambodia, the genocides in Bosnia and, and, and Rwanda, racial discrimination, economic oppression, wars and torture in Afghanistan, in, in Iraq and Iran. The, the images, the, the, the memories, the anger, the fear, the pain, the losses of the 9-11 terrorists' attack. All of these intersect. It's connected with Jesus' teaching on extravagant forgiveness. And then look at your own lives and you'll find broken promises, hurt feelings, betrayals, harsh words, 
physical and emotional wounds, every one of us could tell stories of being hurt or victimized by another. And beneath the pain, beneath the wounds, beneath the losses and all the memories lies the question of forgiveness. Listen, people. Forgiveness is the only way forward. This does not mean we forget or condone or approve of what was done to us. It does not mean we ignore or excuse or the cruelty or, or injustice done to us. It only means we are released with, from them. We go off, let go of the thoughts of, and fantasies of, of revenge. We look to the future rather than the past. We try to see and love as God sees and loves us. Forgiveness is a way in which we align our life with God's life. And to withhold forgiveness from someone is to put ourselves in the place of God who is the ultimate judge to whom we are all accountable. In his refusal to forgive, the extravagantly forgiven servant lost his own forgiveness. This should not be news to us. We know it well. We acknowledge and pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We pray those words with ease and familiarity, but the question is, do we live our prayer? Do our actions support our request? What is our request? Forgive us our trespasses. And the action? As we forgive those who trespass against us. Not seven times. But 77 times. Forgetting, forgiving those who, tre who trespass against us is like the ointment that begins to heal our own wounds, people. It may not change the one who hurts you. But I promise you this. Your life will be more alive, more grace-filled, more whole, more godlike for having forgiven another. Forgiveness takes us out of the darkness into light, from death to life. It disentangles us from the evil grip of another. It is the letting go of the thoughts, the hatred, the fear that fill us so that we might live and love again. Look, I get it. There is no easy road to extravagant forgiveness. Don't let anyone tell you, just give it up to God, forgive and forget. Simplistic answers only demean or disgrace and dishonor those who have been wounded, who have been hurt. Forgiving another takes time and work. It begins with the recognition that we have been forgiven much. That we are the benefactors of the crucified Christ. And listen, 
forgiveness does not originate with us people. It begins with God. And that is what the servant who refused to forgive did not understand. It was not about him. It is about God. We choose to share and extend the forgiveness we have already received. Then we choose again and then again and yet again and yet again to forgive. How many times must we choose to forgive? Well, tell me this. How many times have you been hurt or suffered by the actions or words of another? How many times has, has anger or fear controlled you? How many times have the thought of revenge filled you? How many times have you shuddered or trembled at the sight or the name or the memory of another? That's how many times you choose to forgive. Let me summarize. Are you okay? Is this getting hot, right? I feel what you feel and how you feel. Remember how this all happened? Jesus is teaching about how to deal with people who sin against them. And Peter asks the very good question about how many times we need to forgive others. And then Jesus says we are to forgive others freely without counting no matter how many times they sin against us, right? How could we ever forgive like this? Jesus says it will only happen when you understand fully how much you have been forgiven. Whatever someone has done to offend you, listen people, whatever it is, it pales, it loses significance in comparison to what you have done to offend God. That is not to minimize what people have done against you. Some of it, quite frankly, they're awful, they're terrible, they're horrible. But it diminishes and pales into insignificance when compared to what you and I have done to offend a holy God. True story. When Yahya Wahab's father died in Malaysia in January of 2006, Yahya canceled his father's phone line and paid the final bill of $23. Consequently, he was surprised to receive another letter from the Telecom Malaysia in April of 2006. He was completely and utterly shocked after he opened the letter. In fact, he said he almost fainted because inside was a bill of $218 trillion. Also inside was a letter threatening him, informing him that he must pay the bill within 10 days or face prosecution. Now, it was not initially clear whether this monstrous charge was a mistake or if his father's phone line had been used illegally after his death. But what was immediately clear, however, was that the bill represented a debt that Yahya Wahab would never be able to pay in a million lifetimes. It is like that with God. The debt of our sin, ladies and gentlemen, is so great that we could never repay it. Just like the king in our story, who knew the servant would never be able to pay the debt he owed him. 
And he responds to his plea of mercy, and he took pity on the man and forgives him, cancels the death, sets him free. And that, I submit to you, was what God has done for you and me. Instead of prosecuting us, instead of condemning us by his mercy and extravagant grace, God sent his son to pay that debt that we could not pay. He took our sins to the cross and settled that account for us once and for all. And because we have been forgiven so much, we'll be able to forgive others the relatively small amounts of what they owe us. That's a hard place to say amen, isn't it? We can never forgive more extravagantly than God. And when we realize how much we've been forgiven, when we consider what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary for us, we'll know what it means to forgive, and then we'll be ready to forgive others even for the 78th time. Extravagant forgiveness is possible because God has extravagantly forgiven us. Mexican-American Carlos Santana, you know who he is, right? He's a musician who has 10 Grammy Awards, number 15 on Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest guitar players of all time. His name was inaugurated in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and in 1988, he was inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. He openly discussed and talked in an interview about the gr growing up in a dysfunctional family where his father abandoned him. At the age of 10, he was repeatedly molested by a friend's father who bribed him into silence. And the pedophile's actions instilled guilt and fear in him as a boy and through most of his adult life. In fact, he attempted to take his life seven times. It had taken years before Santana forgave his molesters. He said, with the help of God's grace, the burden of his past was finally lifted. And in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, he said, and I quote, I was able to remove the anger by forgiving that man Forgiveness, man, he says, forgiveness is incredibly liberating. And I'm here to tell you with all my heart and spirit that it can be done. You can be freed. You have to go to the darkest night of your soul to get the brightest light of day. Forgiveness is the key. Psalm 103, 10, 12. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far 
has he removed our transgressions from us? Psalm 103, 10 to 12. I invite you today, on the basis of that extravagant forgiveness that we have received from God, to extend extravagant forgiveness to others. You can do that because he has given us extravagant grace. You can start today, right at this moment. In your bulletin, there's a flowchart, I think, that someone posted in my timeline. I find this to be a good rule of thumb to follow when someone offends you. It's on the bottom part of it. May I have one of those? Look at that with me for a moment, and I'll turn this over to your pastor. When someone offends you, have you seen that? Have you read it? Let's read it together, shall we? When someone offends you, you, there are two things you can do. You can tell people about it. Or what? All right, good. Number two, the listener begins to think less of the offender. Or? What? He listens to me and gives the, a better perspective. Or they join me in speaking negatively about my offender. Isn't that what happens? Or, what, or you can do, because you brought it to God, you will feel peace. The need to vent to others is gone. What happens when someone offends you, the people, you can tell all people about it, the listener begins to, and then lastly, you have succeeded in causing others to sin, creating division in relationships, making myself more upset by rehashing the details over and over, directly knowing and willfully disobeying God's word by reacting according to my flesh rather than submitting to the spirit. Or... If you bring it to God, you have honored God by what? Valuing unity over the very temporary pleasure of gossiping and gaining sympathy from others. Will you take this with you and read through that as you go home today, over lunch, wherever you're going to be? Do that, will you?